Uh, well, it's good to, uh, good to see you tonight. My name's uh, Kevin, one of the uh, ministers here at, uh, at church, and uh, we have the, uh, well, the time now to look at a challenging passage uh, from God's Word. And uh, why don't we pray again as we look at, uh, at the Bible together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that we can gather together tonight as your people. And Father, we pray that we would be a people who know our own sin, but that we would be a people who trust evermore in the Lord Jesus. Father, help us to be honest before you about our struggles and our failings. And Father, may you give us eyes to see the wonder of the gospel of grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you'd like to uh, write down an outline, uh, you can in your sermon outline. Though it's pretty straightforward, so you might not even bother, I guess. But uh, two parts, David's sin, chapter 11, and then God's response in uh, chapter 12, if that's uh, helpful for you. Uh, well, tonight we're continuing our series looking through the book of 2 Samuel. And uh, it's been an exciting story so far. Uh, we've seen David, God's anointed king. We've seen him rise to power. We've seen him capture the city of Jerusalem, build it up and establish it as the capital of the nation of Israel. And it seems like there's a time of peace and prosperity now, a time when justice and righteousness dwells amongst God's people. And you might think, well, maybe this is the time that God's promises will see their fulfillment. Well, you might think that until you read chapter 11 and 12. And that's what we're going to look at tonight, and we're going to dive straight into the passage. So look there, verse 1, that I'll read out now. So chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. I've got a, uh, a map here up on the screen, so you can see uh, there's Jerusalem, now the capital city of uh, the nation of Israel, and the other city that's mentioned is the city of Rabbah, which is the capital of the Ammonites. Now, if you might remember from the previous chapter, you would have looked at during the week, chapter 10, uh, David had just returned from fighting the Ammonites and defeated them in battle. But now, as the chapter begins, he sent uh, Joab. There you go, Joab, the commander of David's army and the army. They've left Jerusalem and gone to Rabbah to lay siege to it. So they've taken the fight to the Ammonites. But as verse 1 tells us, Rather than go with the fighting men, King David has chosen this time to remain in Jerusalem. So when you put it like that, you think, as the chapter begins, you think all the action will be on this side of the screen, right? The right-hand side. We've got a siege, we've got a battle, it's going to be exciting, right? But no, you would have picked up from the reading, the chapter follows the other side of the screen. It follows King David in Jerusalem where he faces a greater enemy than the Ammonites. Not some other foreign nation, but the enemy within. He struggles with his own heart, a human heart corrupted by sin. And look how it all begins in verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing a very beautiful woman. So you can imagine David, he's uh, turned in for the night, 
But he can't sleep. Whatever reason, he gets up and takes a stroll around the roof of his palace. And he looks out over the city. I mean, Jerusalem was built in the mountains, a mountainous city. The palace would have had a a position of height from this tall building. He would have had a commanding view of the city spread out before him. A city that he had captured with God's help. A city that he had established as the capital of this nation. And he looked out at a place of peace and prosperity where justice and righteousness dwell. But of course, for David, it's nighttime, right? There's no electricity, no city light. So as he looked out on the city, it was shrouded in darkness. Not complete darkness, of course. There would have been fires and and torches, the eerie glow of firelight that illuminated pockets of the city. And so David is there on the roof. He looks out, he peers through the darkness, and he sees some movement on one of the roofs of a house. He looks more closely, peering through the darkness, and then it hits him. There is a naked woman bathing on the roof. Now you can imagine for David, this sight would have, would have shocked him, surprised him perhaps. A man like him, you can imagine him looking away, averting his eyes. And yet what does the passage tell us? Well, David looked. He stared, he peered through the darkness until he saw that it was a very beautiful woman. And it's at that point that David makes his decision. Verse 3, look there. David sent someone to inquire about her, and he reported, This is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now for David, that should have been the end of the story, particularly because of the last phrase in that verse. He learns that this woman is married right and david a man who knew god's law should have known that is the end of the story i mean commandment number seven do not commit adultery commandment number 10 do not covet your neighbor's wife and yet david knew this but he desired her listen to the book of james that describes this desire once desire has conceived it gives birth to sin And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. It's fitting in this case, isn't it? David desired this woman. It led to sin and a sin that would lead to death. David knew very clearly, the Old Testament law was clear. For adultery, the penalty was death. And yet for David, knowing all these things, for him the desire was strong His self-control was weak. And so he acts again, verse 4. David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. Such a brief description, isn't it? There's not even a, a conversation recorded. We don't even know what Bathsheba thought of what was going on. But quite clearly, David is the one who took the initiative. He is the one responsible for what happened. He looked, he desired, and he took. He slept with the wife of another man. But notice in the passage, we we have an interesting detail that comes next. It says, now she, Bathsheba, had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness. What's going on here is that Bathsheba had had her period. Under the Old Testament law, there was a time for ceremonial washing. That's why she was having the bath 
on the roof. And this is really important for what follows next in verse 5. Just look there, verse 5. Because the woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. Now, of course, this is you know, before DNA testing, all that kind of stuff. But even so, with the order of events, it is clear that David is the father, right? Bathsheba had her period. She was not pregnant. David sleeps with her. She conceives. Well, David is obviously the father, right? That's the reality beyond a doubt. Which leaves David now in a very difficult position. Right? He's meant to be the king of God's people. He's meant to be a man of godliness and integrity. And yet he has committed this crime, adultery, and there is clear evidence. There is a married woman who is pregnant. What does David do? Well, he tries to cover his tracks. Look there, verse 6. David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And so it seems clear at this point, David already knew who Uriah was. He knew that Uriah was with Joab, the commander of the army, laying siege to Rabbah. Right? So while David is back in Jerusalem, Uriah, the husband, is fighting in the name of the king. He's risking his life as he lays siege to this city. Perhaps it's because David knew that Uriah was many miles away that he was so bold as to take his wife. But Uriah hears the summons of his king, so he returns from battle. All right, here we go. There you go. He's a quick, quick walker, our uh, Uriah. But he comes to David. David summons him in. There's a bit of small talk. How's the battle going? How's Joab going? But the real intent of what David, or why he's brought Uriah back, comes in verse 8. He said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Right, Uriah has come from Rabbah. He's walked all the way back to Jerusalem. He's dirty, right? So David says, look, clean yourself up. Go back home. And the suggestion is clear, isn't it? Go home and sleep with your wife. Right? And the reason David wants Uriah to do this is because if Uriah comes home from battle, goes home, sleeps with his wife, then it can be argued that he is the father of the child. Right? David can deny the charge of adultery and he's in the clear. Right? That's his plan. But it doesn't work. Uriah doesn't sleep with his wife. Instead, verse 9, Uriah slept at the door of the palace with all his master's servants. So rather than going home, Uriah roughs it in the street and sleeps outside the gate of David's palace. And David hears of this and he brings Uriah back and asks him, what's going on? Why didn't you go home? Well, verse 11, Uriah's answer is very interesting. Look there, verse 11. Uriah answered David, the ark, Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents and my master Joab and his soldiers are camping in the open field how can I enter my house to eat and drink and sleep with my wife as surely as you live, David, and by your life I will not do this? Right, it's interesting, isn't it, from Uriah the Hittite. Right? He was a foreigner from another nation. But do you notice his concern for the ark? 
his concern for Israel and Judah. This is a man who has made the nation of Israel his home. And he says to David, look, I can't go home and sleep with my wife because, well, Joab and the army, my brothers in arms, they're off fighting battles. How can I sit around in Jerusalem at home? He's worried for his brothers. They've gone off. They're risking their lives. They've left their wives and families back at home in Jerusalem under the care of David. So why should Uriah be the one to come home and spend time with his wife? Did you notice how Uriah's words condemn David? Because David is the one. He has stayed at Jerusalem eating and drinking and sleeping with Uriah's wife. These words condemn David and plan A has failed. But that leads David to plan B. Plan B, pretty straightforward. He tries to get Uriah drunk. Well, he does with the same kind of idea that Uriah would go home and sleep with his wife. But again, it fails. It seems that Uriah drunk has more integrity than David sober. And so that leaves David then to plan C, the most wicked of plans. See, David, sorry, David writes this letter to Joab. Remember Joab, the commander, laying siege to Rabbah. He sends a letter and says, look, you need to arrange for Uriah to be killed in the fighting. But the key point is that it needs to be an accident, right? But who does he send the message with? Uriah. So Uriah, he gets the command from the king, take this message to your commanding officer outside the city of Rabbah. And Uriah obeys, not knowing that the message he contains seals his death. So here you go, Uriah. There you go. Back to Rabbah. He hands on the message and Joab does what he's asked There you go. That's the end of Uriah. But it's important to see that that Joab needs to make it seem like an accident. He he can't just kind of deal with Uriah quietly on the side. So what he does is he deliberately makes a foolish decision in the battle, which leads to Uriah dying. But not just Uriah. There are others as well. A number of David's men are lost in battle. And Joab, wanting to follow protocol, he wants to keep up what's going on. So, of course, he needs to send a report back to David in Jerusalem to tell him what has happened. And quite clearly, it's bad news, isn't it? Imagine the the commanding officer fighting for the king. He has to send a message back and say, look, because of my foolish decision, there has been a needless loss of life in battle. Right? That is, that's bad news, isn't it? Right? But how does David take the news? He takes it as good news. Because now Uriah is dead. Look there at verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. And you've got a feel for Bathsheba, don't you? In her mind, Uriah, her husband, a casualty of war. But now you see David's intent in verse 27. When the time of mourning ended, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. However, the Lord, sorry, and bore him 
a son. So you can see now what David has intended. With Uriah dead and out the way, now David can take Bathsheba as his wife, add her to the growing collection. And now when the baby is born, well, it can be argued the baby was conceived after the death of Uriah. And so as the chapter ends, you kind of get the feeling that maybe David has succeeded. Maybe he's covered his tracks. But there is that last sentence, isn't there, of the chapter. Such an important one for us to see. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. See, David was deluded. Deluded to think that he could cover his tracks from the Lord God who sees all. And we'll pick up on that in a minute. We're going to look at chapter 12 as well tonight. We'll look at it more briefly where we see God's response to these things. But before we leave chapter 11, it's worth just seeing, I think, the warning that's contained in these verses. Can we just think about it for a minute, right? Think of, uh, of David. He's in, he's in Jerusalem, right? And it just happens that he's walking the palace. He looks out in the darkness and sees a naked woman. Right? Now, he'd, he'd done the wrong thing, but that was the nature of the temptation for David. Right? But just, I mean, just compare that situation for a moment to our world today. Right? How does that compare to the kind of temptation that we see in our world, in the realm of sexual immorality? Right? We look out on our world and we see it dripping with temptation. We see the world around us promoting sexual immorality. And yet for us as Christians, for those who know and love and serve the Lord Jesus, the the Bible's teaching is clear, isn't it? We're to honour God with our body. We're to live with integrity, with godliness and purity. This is what God calls on us to do. Which means, well, we must flee. We must flee from sexual immorality. But here's the thing, right? See, if David fell in this regard, then what does that say to us? Right? Think about David for a moment, right? Now, David wasn't perfect, right? He had his faults, he had his many wives, all that kind of thing, right? But up until this point, he is a man of character, is he not? A man of godliness, a man of integrity. I mean, you think about when we first met David as a shepherd boy. He charges against Goliath, the giant. And he says, you come against me with sword and spear. I come against you in the name of the Lord. What a great example of trusting in God. What a great example of a servant devoted to the Lord God. Then, Then Samuel comes to him, the prophet Samuel, and says, you will be king. And then what does David do? He waits patiently with great integrity, under great oppression, for God to give the kingship to him. David was a man touched by the Holy Spirit, a man whom God used to defeat the enemies of God's people. By all accounts, up until this point, David was a man of integrity and godliness, a man that you might want to be like. And yet what do we see in this chapter? That when faced with this temptation, David fell. And he fell dramatically. Friends, do you see how that is a warning to us? 
Don't think that you are the one exception. Don't think you are the one person who can face this kind of temptation and resist. We cannot be naive about this, friends. We must see the danger that we are in. And we must flee from sexual immorality. We've got to be honest about this. We have to see the world around us. We have to see the danger that we're in. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, right? Now, they're yes or no questions, and they're they're pretty blunt questions, right? But it's important that we're honest about this. I want you to answer yes or no, just to yourself. In the week that's gone past, have you struggled with lustful thoughts? I think the answer is yes or no. In the week gone by, have you viewed pornography? The answer is yes or no. As you think about the people that you know, your relationships, is it remotely possible that you could commit adultery with another person? The answer is either yes or no. And friends, we we have to be honest about this, right? But here's the thing, right? If your answer to any of those questions was even, well, not not really, I guess. Friends, if that is your answer, then you are in very real danger. Friends, you have to see it. And you have to flee from sexual immorality. We see David, a man of integrity, he fell in this regard. And so we must be on guard ourselves. We mustn't fool ourselves. Sin is crouching at the door. And so we have to take deliberate steps to flee, to flee from sexual immorality. And it's not enough just to sort of look back to the past. Oh, yeah, I did something about this before. The question is now. Friends, as you reflect on your life, if you see the danger that you're in, even the remotest danger, then you need to act today. right? Before your head hits the pillow tonight, you need to do something. right? You need to take a proactive step in fleeing from sexual immorality. Right? A great place to start. Get your Bibles out, read Psalm 51. Right? This is David reflecting on these events, confessing his sin before God. Right? You could read that psalm a couple of times. And be honest before God about your struggles, your temptations, and pray that God would strengthen you. But friends, God has given us one to another. He's given us brothers and sisters in Christ that we might encourage and support each other. So it could be that you need to seek the support of, sorry, the support of Christian brothers and sisters. Right? But it's not enough just to say, oh yeah, that's a good idea. I'll, I'll, I'll do that at some point. No, if that's you today right before your head hits the pillow tonight you need to do something but it could be a simple start you know you send a text to a friend a trusted friend and you say look there's something we need to talk about let's work out the details next week that's fine but make a step today it could be you send an email to me or troy or phil or whoever it is and say look it'd be great to catch up sometime i'd like to talk to you about something we cannot be naive about this We must see the danger for what it is and we need to act. 
Now, of course, the passage that we're looking at tonight, it does lend itself to the topic of sexual immorality, right? But it's not the only sin that we struggle with. Now, we need to be honest about every area of our life and the sin that so easily entangles. But friends, as we come back to the topic of sexual immorality, you, you, you have to see, right, that action, it may be just the step you need that leads you away from the path that heads to destruction. Because the Bible is clear, friends, that to live against God's word in this, to indulge in sexual immorality, only leads to death and destruction and a bitter taste in our mouths. But friends, having seen the warning then of chapter 11, as we learn, I guess, from the example of David, we want to come back to him now because he has committed his crime But now in chapter 12, which we'll look at more briefly, well, we see the Lord's response. So look with me there at uh, chapter 12. I'm going to read from verse 1. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David. When he arrived, he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a large number of sheep and cattle, But the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and it grew up, living with him and his children. He shared his meager food and drank from his cup. It slept in his arms and it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man. But the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, He took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the guest. Now, it wasn't unusual for people to bring scenarios like this before the king. Part of the king's job was to administer justice and righteousness, right? But they were to do it for David in accordance with the Old Testament law, right? That was their job. And it's interesting, the book of Exodus Well, there's a clear law about this. Exodus 22.1, when a man steals a sheep and butchers it or sells it, he must repay four sheep for the sheep. Pretty clear. That is what is to happen in this particular scenario, right? But look with me there at verse 5, right? This is how David responds to this scenario. David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he has done this thing and shown no pity, he must pay four lambs for that lamb. Right? You see at the end, David alludes to Exodus 22 verse 1, right? But do you see his indignation in what he says? Do you see his his self-righteousness? This man deserves to die. But what does he do? He sets himself up for Nathan's rebuke in verse 7. Nathan the prophet said to him, you are the man. He says, David, you are that man in the story. You are the one who deserves to die. And at that moment, those words cut to David's heart. The delusion is broken. Of course he cannot hide his sin from the Lord and his prophet. And the prophet recounts to him the crimes of David. Adultery, murder. And for these things, under the Old Testament law, 
David rightly deserves death. Do you see the sting of Nathan's words? David, you are that man. You are the one who deserves death. But then have a look, verse 13. Look at how David responds to these things. He says, quite simply, I have sinned against the Lord. Pretty straightforward, weren't, pretty sorry, straightforward words. And yet they're true, aren't they, right? It's interesting, Psalm 51 I referred to before. This is David writing a poem reflecting of this very event. And there you see David pouring out his sin before the Lord and calling upon the Lord for mercy. But here in 2 Samuel, quite simply, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. But then look what happens next. The rest of verse 13, then Nathan, speaking for the Lord, the Lord has taken away your sin, you will not die. Now I think for us as Christians, I mean, we read that verse and it just, it kind of just washes over us, right? We think, yeah, okay, that's what happens, right? The Lord takes away sin and of course David shouldn't die, right? But friends, we have to just stop and reflect on the situation a little bit more because we need to see the outrage of this verse. I mean, David was a man who was guilty, right? He had done the wrong thing. He'd committed adultery. He committed multiple counts of murder. So how can the prophet say to him, the Lord has taken away your sin? How can the prophet say to him, you will not die? Doesn't that seem unfair to you doesn't that seem unjust to you and imagine Saul right imagine if he was standing there in the corner listening to these words what would he say the previous king Saul he would say hey how how can you say that that's so unfair how can you take away the sin of David and yet me and not do the same for me Right? You can sense Saul's outrage at these events. And it's important that we see that, right? But what we see, verse 13, is clear, isn't it? The Lord, the sovereign one, he is the one with the right to forgive sins. It's up to him, right? He can choose to take away David's sin. And he can say to David, you will not die. But it actually goes further than that. Look down verse 24 to 25. See, the Lord actually blesses the union of David and Bathsheba. Right? Bathsheba has another son, Solomon, the one who would build the temple. And look what the Lord says, verse 24, the Lord loved him. Right? How can that be, that the Lord would bless a relationship that began with adultery? But friends, it's important we see this. It's important we see the outrage of this verse that we see that it just doesn't seem fair. Because it's only as we understand that that we can understand the wonder of the gospel. Right? See, for us as Christians, we know the good news of the New Testament. Right? We know Jesus, the one who came to die in our place, the one who came to secure the forgiveness that we so desperately need. Right? It's because of Jesus, because his death in our place, that's why God can be just, That's why he can be fair and the one who declares the innocent guilty because Jesus came to take the judgment that we deserve. But here's the thing, right? See, 
we know, we should know as Christians, that we are sinners. Right? I hope that's clear to you. Our sin might not be the same as David. I hope not. Right? But we sin. And like David, we deserve death. But there's actually more to it than that. See, at least David was descended from Abraham. At least he was an heir of the promises. Most of us are not Jewish, right? So if you want to put yourself in the story, where are you? You're in, in Rabbah, right? The city of the Ammonites. For us who are not Jewish, for us who are sinners, we have no right to call God our Father were it not for his incredible grace, were it not for the Lord Jesus willingly come to serve us to give his life a ransom for many. And it's because of that, friends, that we can look forward to the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city being prepared for us. It's because of Jesus that we can be confident of that. But come back with me for a minute to David. Right? Amazingly, the Lord says to David, the Lord has taken away your sin, you will not die. Right? David has been forgiven. But while he's been forgiven, there are still consequences for his sin and they are tragic. Because of David's sin, because of his adultery and murder, the prophet of the Lord says to him, the child born to you, the one conceived in adultery, still a baby at that point, the consequence was that baby would be sick and die. And that's what happens. That's what we read in the chapter. And it's tragic, isn't it? But there's another consequence. The prophet says to David, because of your sin, there will be disaster in your family. And again, that is exactly what we see. Next week in our gospel teams, we're going to be looking at chapters 13, 14 and 15. And some of the saddest chapters in the Bible as we see David's family disintegrate. Amnon, his son, rapes his half-sister Tamar. Absalom, another son, murders Amnon. And then Absalom rises up in revolt against his father David and drives him out of the city. It's horrible, isn't it? Tragic chapters to read. And they are consequences of David's sin. Now it is important we say that, see, for David, he had a specific word from the prophet that connected his sin with those consequences. For us as Christians, we, we don't have that, right? So we need to be very careful about drawing a link between a particular sin and a consequence. But the general principle still stands, doesn't it? While we know the forgiveness of our sin, yes, praise the Lord, there are still consequences to our sin and it gets played out in our lives. You might know that only too painfully. And who are the ones who suffer most under our sin? Well, usually it's those who are closest to us, our family. We might know the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus, but there are still consequences that get played out because of our sin. Well, drawing all this together, then we look. In, sorry, we see in these two chapters that David is clearly a sinner. Right? There is no doubt about it. But to finish, I want to read from Psalm 51, and this is David reflecting on his sin. Right? At least he was honest about it. 
Listen to these words in Psalm 51. Wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. And this is David reflecting on the depths of his sin. But listen how he continues in verse 6. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. See, friends, the joy for us living this side of the cross is we know the amazing gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus. That, friends, as we turn to him, as we trust in his death and resurrection, we can know that sinners like us Sinners can be washed clean. Friends, how amazing is that? That because of Jesus' death, because of his love, because of his willingness to come and serve us, we sinners can be made whiter than snow. How incredible is that? How wonderful the grace of our God. And what a wonderful thing to praise God now as I lead us in prayer. Join with me as we pray. Father, we do praise you. And we praise you for your amazing grace to us. Father, you know the way that we sin. You know our struggles, our temptations. We may deceive others. But Father, you see our every action. You see our motivation. You see the depths of our sin. Father, may we be a people who are honest before you, acknowledging the ways that we fall short. And Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his death in our place. We thank you for that incredible offer of forgiveness. And Father, we pray that we would cling to that, that that might be our only hope, our only assurance as we look forward to that heavenly city. And Father, we pray that as your people, knowing the wonder of your love and your forgiveness, that we would be a people who seek to be obedient to you. And that in particular, Father, we would seek to honour you with our bodies. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.